you know, you guys were had less than half the homes uh, that were uh, sort of called for under under your housing plan in the last cycle, which ended in 2014. <sighs> less than half of them were were built. Um, and this is obviously an area where there's significantly high, you know, high demand for, for housing, right? Yeah, I love that. Love the premise of what you just said. Yeah. Um, but love the statement. I love how, how it gets portrayed that way and how utterly, totally, completely false it is here, Redondo Beach. That entire okay, tell statement. Me wrong. Tell me what's wrong. Yeah, Let's do it. Yeah. Welcome to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I am Matt Levin, data journalist with Cal Matters. And I'm Liam Dillon with the Los Angeles Times. And today on the podcast, our journey across California takes us to Redondo Beach. And Liam, why are we going to Redondo besides the fact that it's a lovely beach community in which I would love to live? Well, it's in Los Angeles and they're small and they do a lot of things that um, the state doesn't like. You know, there are all these state laws and Redondo Beach says, eh. (laughs) (laughs) And I think we have... I'm just going to say, I think this was our best interview we've done so far. It was good. I don't know what you think. That was pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you pronounce his name. Nils Narenheim. Who is a city council member for, a recently elected city council member uh, for the city of Redondo, who ran on a... Slow growth platform. Slow growth platform. Mm-hmm. Um, and it got, I don't want to say heated, because um, that... That's no. portraying it wrong, but it was yeah. it was just good to have that voice. Yeah, absolutely, and and I think you know, oftentimes when we're sitting in Sacramento, we and you know when we have people on the show that rail against local governments and local government officials, it, it's good to have um, to understand where um, many of the local government officials are coming from. You know, folks who are tied to uh, spend a long time in their communities and run on certain issues, and this is what they believe. Um. And I enjoyed every time he said that your question had a false premise. That, that were many. To kind of counterbalance Nils. Yes. Um, and again, bringing the state perspective, uh, we chatted with Ben Metcalf. And why don't you tell us who yeah, Ben so Metcalf he's, is? Yeah, so he's the director of housing and community development here at the state. He's been in, uh, sort of around for not, not very long, a couple of years. Um, and, you know, the guy who's supposed to make what the governor wants to do on housing work. And so... We talked a lot about um, how all the recent housing legislation, a lot of the burden for implementing all of that falls on on him and his office. Also, I want to just apologize for some of the audio around the Metcalf interview. Yeah. Be patient with us. There's a little bit of an echo when Liam talks, and he requested that because he loves hearing the echo of his own voice. It, it's important. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so apologies. It is intelligible. You can listen to it. We, we realize it's a problem. Promise it won't happen again. Uh, one other note real quick. I just want to say, like, Liam recently informed me of all the positive reviews we've gotten on iTunes, um, as well as some written comments. Thank you for those. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, it, really is. it is. And it makes it's very gratifying for me and Liam. We've also gotten some emails that have been very complimentary. So yeah. to know that there is an audience that actually can tolerate us and listens to us and finds us mildly entertaining and informative. That's that's really nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so thank you. So thank you. And please continue to send us, tweet at us, send us emails with ideas you have for the Avocado of the Week, for story segments, for whatever, ways we can improve the show. And uh, continue to rate us highly on iTunes. Liam. Is it time? Yeah, it is time. It this, is time? This is where 90% of people, as soon as you say it, then they turn off the podcast. Right. So it's our ever popular segment, out. the Avocado of the Week. 
And so the avocado of the week, we're going to award it to someone this week. Yeah. 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 Um, which goes to uh, State Assembly Speaker Anthony Rendon. And why? Tell us why, Matt. Um, I'm going to read you a statement that Anthony Rendon put out in response to the uh, GOP House tax reform plan um, and its implications for California housing. Uh, the dangerous Trump-Ryan McConnell tax plan throws California taxpayers under the limousine. Oh, zing. (laughs) Yeah. Let's not get too crass with this. Let's, let's. I mean, he said under the limousine. (laughs) We're allowed to say zing after that. That's what he was going for. He wanted everyone to read that and go, whoa. Yeah. Under the rush to get, to continue the statement, under the rush together Republican tax plan, hardworking Californians could pay up to twenty two percent more to subsidize tax breaks for billionaires and big corporations. Kind of your standard Sanders vein left criticism of of sure. the of the GOP tax plan. Red meat. Here is the avocadoy part: cutting the mortgage deduction in half hurts home buyers and the housing industry. Proposition 13 lowered California property taxes, but the Republican tax plan effectively raises the property tax for many California homeowners. Um, He goes on to talk about um, the state and local tax deduction, which is a separate topic. Um, But let me punt it back at you. What what is avocado-y about this statement from the... Fairly progressive Anthony Rendon. Yeah, it's just so it's so interesting. I mean, first of all, the fact that federal tax policy is just so many impacts on housing in California. I mean, you know, in the abstract, you wouldn't necessarily think so. And here we are with the way it was produced. So many things that are happening with that affect housing policy. It's interesting, you know, Rendon on the mortgage interest deduction says yeah. uh, that's great. Uh, mortgage deduction is great. But of course, you know. Back in the spring or back in the winter, he supported curtailing the state's version of the mortgage introduction through a bill that was um, authored by Assemblyman David Chu that would have eliminated that that tax break for second homes and dedicated the money to um, to low income housing. And you know, yeah, obviously the money is going to different things and all this sort of stuff. But what's interesting though is the rhetoric that he used is the same rhetoric that the that the proponents of the mortgage introduction, chiefly the realtor industry, say all the time when any anyone ever proposes changing anything about it. And so that was a real interesting turn of phrase. It is. And let's take a step back and let's kind of parse through as quickly and concisely as possible what the federal tax uh, reform plan is, and then sp- right. when it comes to the mortgage interest deduction, and specifically how it affects California homeowners. So I can, I mean, would go ahead. You like I to- mean, yeah. So they, you know, they broadly, and you'll you'll fill in my gaps here. Yes, I mean, they, as they, I always do, as you always do. They they want to <laughs> cut tax rates for businesses, want to cut taxes for um, for everyone else, right? And but in order to do that, they need to pay for things, and yes. and the way to pay for things is to, they've decided to eliminate uh, certain tax breaks, and a huge tax break is the mortgage interest deduction, which allows people to deduct what they pay uh, on their mortgage uh, interest uh, mm-hmm. from their federal taxes, and in California also their state taxes as well. Now, obviously, this policy would only affect, or this proposal only affect the federal version of that, uh, but that, that would, you know, uh, and so under the GOP plan, it says uh, your, you know, mortgage is over 500 grand. Um, don't get it anymore. Only the first 500 you get to count, whereas now the, the threshold is a million. million. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. There are many different kind of interesting nuggets that you can draw from this. And we should emphasize that this is just, it's just a plan. That's right. And a lot can change, especially something around this can change before something actually gets enacted, even if it does get enacted. Right. Um, 
this is a, yet another way of highlighting how uniquely inflated California housing prices are compared to the rest of the country. Exactly. Because when you hear a, okay, we're only going to, we're not going to let you take a interest off a mortgage that exceeds, you know, 500000 in Nebraska, in Utah, in uh, Texas, in where... <laughs> where many legislators at the federal level are from, they say, oh, yeah, those are insanely expensive houses. Yeah, the, and, if no one would ever have paid mortgage over 500 grand in those states. Exactly. That's crazy. Right. And yeah. here in California, the median price of a home is yeah. over $500,000. That's right. So it affects a lot of people. Those people are still going to be, you know, disproportionately wealthier and live in some of the most expensive coastal areas in the state. Um, I think, like, 20% of it's around 20% of California mortgages are already over $500,000. Yeah. Um but it it is going to hit California in a way that is substantially different than m- the vast majority of the rest of the country. Well, interesting too that they're grandfathering in existing mortgages. Yes. And so, you know, we've talked a lot about in this show about how Prop 13 creates a disincentive for people to sell because their property tax rates are locked in. And this, in some ways, could, could pr- produce the same effect for a decent amount of a period of time, uh, where you know people are locked in at this at this at the mortgages they have and don't want to you know sell and buy a uh, buy a new house uh, where they would not be able to to to, to that anymore. And so that is another spillover, potential spillover effect on the housing market that this that this plan could have. And it, and, and it also is another generational issue. Yes, I mean, we've talked a lot yes. about generational issues in Prop 13. Same thing would happen yes. here where those who already own houses, you know, read older people, yes. um, uh, get a, the windfall when younger folks who don't have houses yet eat, eat it again. Uh, <laughs> so Eat avocados. Eat avocados, you know, or... <laughs> And that's all they can do. That's all they can afford to yes. do. Yeah. I, I want to talk a little bit more about kind of the interesting ideological twist around this. So, right, repealing the mortgage interest deduction has been a goal of progressives. Let's let's ignore the revenue, like the actual yeah. revenue that gets generated from it. Let's yeah. just talk about the principle. This is a regressive tax benefit, right? Wealthy people get a benefit from the mortgage interest deduction way more than lower-income people who either do not itemize their taxes and thus can't claim it sure, or, or are renting. Yeah, right? but, you know, you also have Democratic—I mean, Nancy Pelosi was all about how horrible it was to get rid of the mortgage introduction even when it was just being floated, you know, floated. And so— Yeah, but so, on the very left of the party, what's his name? Keith Ellison? Oh, the, sure. Yeah. On, the, on the very left of the party, that's yes. what you have. So, yeah, I mean, but I—and I know that there are a number of sort of more libertarian folks on the right who, who sort of feel— feel the same way this is a tax true. break that and so it is really interesting that you know the sort of centrist consensus is this is good right yes. um whereas the sort of the uh 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 i don't know if more partisan is the right word but sort of you know uh, more you know uh, i don't know ideological elements of uh of, of 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 both parties say this is bad uh if you're fairly ideologically progressive i think there's a case to be made where this was such a third rail. Yeah. This is actually an op. Let's ignore the revenue component of it for now. Right. This is an opportunity to actually do away with an incredibly regressive benefit. We can fix the revenue. We could devote the revenue to different sources later. Right. This is. Does that make sense? No, I know what you're arguing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm following I think, your line I of think argument. People yeah. are having that discussion, though. Yes. No, you're right. I've seen. I mean, I see it on Twitter. That means yes. the discussion's happening. You know. So. <laughs> That sounds dismissively. <laughs> well, 
That's why I'm here. Uh, it is. Yeah. Um, let's talk about very briefly um, some of the other elements of the tax reform package beyond the mortgage interest deduction that will endanger uh, housing funding. Here. Housing funding here. Yes. yes. It's another really interesting thing is that you know basically low income housing funding ar- across the country relies tremendously on like. Bank investors, baby. yeah, bank investors deciding that they want to get tax credits. I mean, it's the largest program in California. It's the largest, one of the largest. Pro- I mean, if not the largest program around the country. And it again, this is how we fund things: fund low income housing. It's that banks buy tax credits. Um, and the tax credit program, in in a couple of ways, could be really affected by what's on the table. Uh, uh, in 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 Washington, on the one hand, you know, one of the tax. Let, let's take yeah. a step back really quickly. Let's yeah. just walk through what uh, the low income housing tax credit program is and and how it works. Yeah. So if I'm a bank and I want to lower my tax rate, uh, I can buy credits uh, that then go fund uh, low income housing, the construction or preservation of low income housing developments uh, across the country. And so affordable housing developers, which need subsidies to make these things make their projects pencil out, um, will, you know, apply for these credits at, and, and, and uh, there's a robust program here in California and apply for these credits to get funding. Nicely done. Yeah. Okay, continue. Yes. So uh, one credit effort, one sort of half of this, um, gets wiped out entirely uh, by the um, proposal of, of, of uh, by the GOP because it sort of, it's sort of a roundabout way, but basically, you know, this, this program that, that provides a smaller subsidy um, for these projects, but one certainly that's important and is relied on, goes away uh, under, the, under the plan. Let's just talk about this now. Okay. I, th- I think it was an accident. I think they just screwed up. I know that's... <laughs> Because the House GOP explicitly said we are going to retain the right. low-income housing tax credit, yeah. which has bipartisan support. That's true. Orrin Hatch is, yeah. a, is a fan. He is. Then they said we're going to do away with this special type of bond. Right. Now, that special type of bond is instrumental for a portion of the low-income housing tax credit. And they're going to get an earful of grief they already have yeah. about this, right? Sure. So I think my prediction is that that will survive. I'm going on record. Wow. Yes. Okay. Just like I was right about Manshine. <laughs> you were right about Manshine. That's right. <laughs> we'll see. I was, we'll, I was we'll, much more tepid in that prediction. We'll, we'll see if all our predictions are good because I got the rent control thing, man. So, like, now, you know, we'll see. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll, this is getting needlessly competitive. Yeah. <laughs> the other interesting thing, too, is just the, the, the sheer um, chance um, or if this actually happens, the reduction in the corporate yes. tax rate from yes. 35% more to, important story, to, to, to 20 um, makes these credits less valuable. And if these credits are less valuable, then it helps, you know, build would build less affordable housing um, because companies are not going to pay as much to, to buy them because they're not going to need them because they're, they'll be paying less in, in a, a, a lower tax rate anyway. Which means developers are going to have a tougher time finding financing for their affordable housing projects. And it really is the mother's milk of all affordable housing, basically, this specific program. Yes. Um, okay. Anything else around our avocado? No, just avocado. Uh, real quickly, we should also say in the federal tax reform plan is a prohibition against deducting your mortgage interest from second homes, which is exactly what David Chu's bill tried to do here in Sacramento. And went nowhere. And went nowhere, as yeah. I think Liam has said multiple times on this podcast. Didn't didn't go anywhere. <laughs> um, okay, now to our uh, regional tour. Continuing, yes. um, let's talk about 
Redondo Beach. You want, you want to team me up with a number here? Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah. Uh, our number of the week. It's 180, Matt. And uh, what is important about 180? Well, uh, in Redondo <laughs> Beach, uh, there was a 180-unit project that was proposed by a developer uh, along Pacific Coast Highway, which is one of the main uh, through fares in um, in Redondo Beach. Uh, and that project would have had nine units reserved for low-income residents. Uh, the developer claimed that it was within zoning, and they wanted to use a state program that allows them to build higher and more units um, uh, if they reserve a certain amount for, for low-income residents. That program's called the density bonus. Uh, the um, uh, Also, Redondo Beach, recognizing this was a prime property um, in, its, uh, in, in the city, referenced it in its housing plan, the sort of housing element that they have to provide to the state uh, every number of years, eight years, to say this is how much land we're going to have um, to allow, to accommodate the number of homes that you say, you, the state, say we need to build. So they reference this uh, 180 units. Developer proposed 180 units, want to take advantage of a state program that would allow uh, this amount of density to occur in that land. But uh, nope. Q Save the Riviera. Save the Riviera, yes. a neighborhood group in Redondo Beach formed to fight this project, uh, which was proposed by a developer named Legato. Um, the city ultimately um, said, fine, you can do 115 units, uh, not 180, and none of those 115 would be reserved for low-income residents. And so Legato went to court, a uh, long protracted lawsuit, um, but it turns out, recently settled, 115 units is what's going on going on that property. We covered a similar incarnation of this. I mean, obviously, this is happening all over the state, but th- this is very similar to what was happening in Brisbane, right? Which we talked about on a previous version of the podcast. Well, I, I think well, to I think to a certain extent, the macro level of like a small city not wanting a lot of housing. Yeah, but I think I think on a micro. What are the important differences? Yeah, I think on a micro level here, we have a number of like Brisbane. Like this, this was a huge project. The land wasn't zoned for housing that Brisbane considering. It was a gigantic piece of you know piece, but like a much smaller town, much too. smaller town too here. I mean, it's not just this project. I have a laundry list of things that the state says cities should do that Redondo just doesn't do. I mean, they, you know, they are supposed, everyone's supposed to turn in a, um, you know, their production, housing production to the state uh, every year. Redondo doesn't do it. Uh, They don't turn in these forms just to say how many homes are built. Um, you know, they are not in compliance with the housing plan. They, um, uh, while uh, Nils, Nils told us they have since tried to cure this uh, recently issue, they have not zoned a partial of land or had not previously zoned a partial of land to allow for a, for a homeless shelter on it. Uh, and that's something that the state requires in its housing plan. And therefore, Redondo is one of the few cities that are out of compliance currently with the, with the housing element law. Um, you know, they, uh, production's low. I mean, they, they were assigned, um, 2,200 homes, uh, to, to be built through 2014 under the last cycle and less than half of them were actually built. Uh, you know, I know that, that they've down zoned so much over the years that if you tore down every single house in Redondo beach, uh, you could now under the zoning code build fewer homes than what exists right now. And huh. and so they've you know they've made it so that 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 they're more restrictive than what exists in the city currently, um, and you know they have a bunch of like funny things that they've said uh, and done to oppose <laughs> development. One that's my favorite. Um, there's another sort of mixed use development that 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 was on that's been on the table recently called the Galleria, and so a group of residents has formed uh, Residents Against Galleria Expansion, which has a wonderful acronym. 
Rage. Rage. <laughs> Take that gallery expansion, right? And so we had a quote in a news article I found uh, from one of the one of the founders of Rage who said, you know, they call me a NIMBY. Actually, it's a nymphy, not in my front yard because it's my big, big concern that I'll never see the morning sun. And so, again, you know, I, you know, and we'll, and we'll, we get into all these sorts of questions. Um, I couldn't give the whole laundry list to Nils, um, but we get into all these sorts of questions in our interview. Yes. What I think is, is interesting about this case, you know, putting aside kind of the, the details here, it's that the state existing rules said that cities should or can and should be doing X, Y, and Z, and here are the ways that we as a state want to make it easier for developers or make it easier for houses to be built, and here are all the ways that Redondo says no, and um, and to watch that sort of all being meted out, right? To watch what the implications of, of that sort of process that we all sort of all agree, I think, on all sides is broken, um, how, that, how that plays out in real time. Uh, with that, uh, first we're going to take a listen to a very animated discussion with you say you say his name again. Nils Narenheim from the Redondo Beach City Council, and then a interview with Ben Metcalf, head of um, State Housing. So we're here for an interview with Nils Narenheim, city councilman in Redondo Beach. Uh, Nils was first elected in uh, 2016, and uh, his big, uh, big sort of interest in uh, his to get involved in local politics was housing and other development issues uh, in the city. So, Nils, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us. You're welcome. My pleasure. Glad, glad you guys reached out. So, are you are, are you like a, a Redondo native? Are you from the 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 city or the area, or or, so, or how long? Yeah. yeah, no, I I was born in San Pedro, born and raised, actually, as they say, born and bred in Pedro, and um, I've been coming to South Bay my whole, whole life, either as a lifeguard because I worked in as an LA County lifeguard down here on the beaches, and uh, I've been a junior guard instructor. I've been a junior guard since I was nine years old, so I've been coming to the beaches here locally. You know, South Bay has always been where I've come to. And so I lived here in Redondo for about 11 years now, and it's 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 a jewel down here. It's a part of the South Bay, as we call it, and it's completely different than, than the Santa Monica area. If everyone knows the Santa Monica Bay or L.A., Santa Monica is on the north side, Redondo's on the south side, and it's two completely different types of characters and different types of communities of people. The lifestyles are different. Everything about it is opposite. What 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 exactly is the character of Redondo Beach? How how would you define it, and and why would a new development threaten it? So a uh, new development does definitely does not threaten anything in Redondo Beach. It's the it's the out of character, out of style, the 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 West Side style of of development, which is these large concrete, glass, and steel. Uh, buildings that they build nowadays at 35 to 50 plus units an acre. Um, you know, the, the character of the community down here is, you know, we're a beach town by the, by the sea. We don't have any massive public transportation. We don't have any huge freeways near us. We don't have any uh, st- stadiums or things like that. It's a beach town. We have a little area called Riviera Village. And, you know, this area history is Hollywood Riviera and it was meant to be grown as as a place where the rich and famous from Hollywood come down and vacation. And so a lot of the PS and PV houses have red tile roofs, Mediterranean style. Everything's beach oriented, single family homes. Um, we have some apartment complexes here that are 50, 60 units an acre. So a lot of condos. 
and we have a huge mix and overall vibe of housing and different styles of development, but it's a bedroom community at the end of the day. 90% of our residents travel out of Redondo Beach and go to downtown LA, El Segundo, and Torrance in that, in that order. So, um, Nils, I want to list a, a few things that, that people around the state were going to be angry at Redondo Beach about. Um, and this is about, you know, a bunch of state rules that, you know, you that they don't feel like you guys are taking super seriously. Right. And so, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, there's a there's a state housing planning rule. It's known you know by wonks as the housing element. And yep. most most cities around the state are compliant with that for having a housing plan to accommodate uh-huh number of units and all, all, all sorts of things over a time period. By, by law, they've got to have one, yep. Right, and Redondo's one of the cities that's not compliant with that with that law. Well, the not, I, not I, would love to, I would love to even find, define that by non-compliant. What do you mean by that? What are we not compliant about on that? Well, the, the state certifies cities' housing elements, and the state right. has not certified Redondo's housing element as being compliant with, um, with regulations and everything. And the one thing that that, that you folks have left out, again, according to the state's housing department, is that you haven't uh, zoned an area that would allow for a homeless shelter by right. And that's the okay. main issue. So that's the reason why the city is not compliant with the, with the So we just plan. voted on that just the other night, actually. I was yeah. there. Uh, and yeah. we passed that. And we have actually two zoning areas now, not just one, but two. Okay. Um, that allow for the homeless shelter. It's actually temporary shelters. It's not homeless shelters. It's temporary shelters, which is a kind of a bad term for it because it's actually permanent housing. Because yeah. it's housing that's actually permanent, but it's only temporary because you can only live there for six months. So it's kind of a okay. um, yeah, odd way to describe it, temporary housing. Sure. But yeah, sure. so we just have that, and, and we didn't have one for years. You're right. And something that we never really got onto. We don't have much industrial zone and areas like that that could really – this be placed, but we've got to figure it out now. So there's nothing that we're out of compliance for. So let's talk about um, housing production. You know, the last cycle, uh, you know, you guys were had less than half the homes uh, that were uh, sort of called for under under your housing plan in the last cycle, which ended in 2014. <sighs> less than half of them were were built. Um, and this is obviously an area where there's significantly high, you know, high demand for for housing, right? Yeah, I love that. Love the premise of what you just said. Yeah. Um, but love the statement. I love how, how it gets portrayed that way and how utterly, totally, and completely false it is here, Redondo Beach. The entire okay, tell statement. me what's wrong. Tell me what's wrong with you. Yeah. 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 So, so, yeah. So you just talked about the RETA numbers, right? For us, yeah, we get yeah, a lot exactly. of scatter. Yeah. So, in California area governors, right. uh, right. governments. And so let me just talk to you real quick about RIA numbers. You know, uh, yeah. everyone wants to talk about that. Our SCAG allocation was 1,397. All right. That's the current one. I, I was referring to the, to the prior one where there were 2,200, but we could talk about either. It's fine. Well, it's fine by the me. 2200, yeah, the 2,200 one, that was actually brought down to, to 1,400. So, yeah, so I'll just talk about that for a second. Um, yeah. Torrance, which is right next door, we share a huge border with Torrance. Right. Their allocation is 1,450, and their population is 147,000, which is 200, over 200% of our population. So they got nearly the identical uh scag allotment rena allotment that we did and yet we are you know half their size mm-hmm. more than half their size yeah. okay so let's talk about that for a second well why they have the size or we have the size and uh, what's important about that is let's look at density you know we yeah. have redondo beach eleven thousand people um 
per square mile here in Redondo, 10,900 to be exact. Torrance has 7,100 people per square mile. So if you want to bring them up to our current population, our density, they're going to need to increase by 77,000 people. That yeah. means you need to take the entire population of Redondo, add another 10,000, more than 10,000 people, throw that into, into uh, the city of Torrance, and then say, oh, by the way, you need to add another 1,300 units of, of, uh, of, of residential population. So yeah. these numbers, real numbers, don't make any sense. They're just they're literally just handed out like water. Here, you can have some, you can have some. Uh, yeah. There's been no real calculation behind them. It's been called a black box. It's been called, uh, oh, cities just say, I want this many, or I want that many. Uh, Hermosa yeah. Beach, for instance, more dense than us. Yeah. Uh, they were asked, what's your, what, what's your projected growth? They said one. Skag said, well, we can't give you one because minimum is two, so we'll give you two. Okay. Okay. And, okay. and Hermosa is de-densifying. They're actually losing residential units. They're going taking lots that have four or five, six units and going down to one or two units. City of Torrance is absolutely stealing all of our tax revenues because they have car dealerships, these these big malls that are now you know being changed over to office buildings and everything else right. along the way, and we don't right. have any of that. And and again, look at their density. It's 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 forty percent of ours. Yeah. So, so it's interesting. It's interesting because and and you know when I talk to state officials about all of these sorts of things and they understand that local communities sort of, you know, have the same issues that you, that you're just raising about whether it's fair that X community gets a certain number of houses compared to Y community. Right. But they also say, look, at the end of the day, it's a collective action problem. If no community says, you know, oh, okay, we'll, we'll take on the houses. Then the fact that we have a, you know, a really large housing shortage in the state by all academics and say this, and by, you know, most state officials say this, if no city is willing to sort of, take on um, residences, then we're not going to get out of the major problem that we have in the state. <laughs> well, first of all, again, I'm, I'm going to tell you that Redondo Beach has, we've been doing our job tremendously when it comes to producing housing. We've been densifying above the LA County average of residential population. We're, we're adding units left, right, and center. And we're doing our job. In fact, one of the reasons why we get such a high a SCAG number, arena number, is because we've been producing all, all of this uh, uh, residential housing. When you go back to your statement earlier that we only produce half or something of, of what yeah. the arena allocation was, oh, that's yeah. great. But look at what these other cities have been doing. And they've been doing zip, zip, zilt, zero. None of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you know, they're doing nothing. We're doing a lot. And where's our commercial tax revenue? Where is the conversation regarding infrastructure such as traffic, public yeah. transportation, open space, and parkland? You know, we have in Rihanna Beach one of the lowest in, this, in the greater Los Angeles area, area of park space and open space to residential population. And when you densify and you densify and you densify, it puts an overburden on our parks and open space that other cities don't have. Um, your your mayor was recently quoted as saying he doesn't believe there's a housing shortage in Redondo. I'm wondering if you agree with that. I, absolutely, 100% agreed. We have an incredible mix of housing here at Redondo Beach. We have senior housing, R1 housing. We've got condos, townhouses. We've got mixed use. Uh, you name it, we've got it here. Again, look at our density. We're 11,000 people per square mile. 
the only place that was more dense than us is Hermosa Beach, and they're de-densifying. We're on the same level of density as Santa Monica, and everyone looks at Santa Monica and says, wow, look at Santa Monica, that's dense. And we get a lot of what I call Santa Monica refugees coming down to living in our area because they feel it's not as dense. But if you look at the housing density numbers, we're just as dense. But what makes it bearable for Santa Monica is they have the 10 freeway going right through the middle. They've got Lincoln Boulevard, Santa Monica Boulevard. They got four or five just a hopscotch away. Okay. So, um, you know, look at our density. And you talked about Rena a few minutes ago. Right. You know, Rena numbers, they're not ready for prime time. I, I applaud Senator Wiener for doing what he thought was was the best thing to try to do. But if you really look at that bill, that was a kind of a giveaway to the to the housing uh, labor unions. We're talking uh, about Senate, be, Senate Bill 35, the, the Senate Bill 35. Area. Yep. Uh-huh. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, again, you look at the density, look at the traffic issues. We're 11,000 people per square mile. We're way more dense than Torrance, which is right next door. You know, if you look, uh, Manhattan Beach is a way less dense than us. Hermosa Beach is just above us. But yet they have general fund revenues that far surpass us. And that's because they have commercial centers. They have the ability to to bring in tax revenues and pay for the residential. Um, You know, and everyone says, oh. Well, well, residential will will pay for your tax general tax revenues. Well, in that case, why are our ta- general fund revenues through the roof if we're so yeah. dense? You I'm, know, I, I'm curious. So, if, if there's not a if if you agree that there's not a housing shortage in Redondo, do, do you think there's a housing shortage in the South Bay generally, considering some of the price levels there? And and well, do you, you not, know, and do you not think Redondo yeah. fits into the broader kind of South Bay housing? um ecosystem yeah i mean we, we all have to work together in when it comes to you know, the housing situation and, and the ecosystem we all work and play our part but i think again if you go back to my prior statements you know i, I was just talking to some people who live out in palm springs some, some realtors and some people who just bought a uh, sold, sold a condo out in uh, palm springs and and you can buy a house out there for three hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars you can buy condos for dirt cheap and you can, you know, some houses take two, three, four months to sell. Some condos take a year plus to sell. They don't ever really get what their asking price is. Nobody talks about a housing a, a crisis or housing affordability out in Palm Springs. So that's a pretty what about Bars? from Palm Springs to El Segundo in downtown LA. And that's sell, right. You're right. And that's exactly my point is, is why does the South Bay need to become so dense and not have the, the worker office space ratio? And, you know, again, it comes down to, hey, you want to play this game with, with densifying us, where are you going to provide the jobs where people can, can work? Everyone wants to live by the beach. Does that mean we end up like Miami where we put up 50-story uh, uh, towers of condos? Is that, is that what we want to see? You know, and if you look at Santa Monica, that's what they've done. And if you look at Miami, that's what they've done. But people don't want that redondo. You- Nils, you brought up, and this is a project that that you, you referenced was, you know, the the Riviera project was was against, and you yeah. referenced, I believe, I don't know the language you used, but you said sort of taking down this uh, this project, and this is this was a pretty interesting interesting thing because, you know, when I I, I spent a little bit of time looking at, the, at at this project, this is a hundred the hundred eighty unit originally yep. hundred eighty unit uh, uh, yeah. Legato project, right? So it was along yep. along Pacific Coast Highway. That that's what yep. we're talking about. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, 
Exactly. So yeah. I'll, I'll walk you through that project. You know, it's a very interesting project because yeah. the, the premise needs to be, you need to think about this entire time, you need to think about this very particular statement. Uh, yeah. One of our city staff said at a community meeting after this whole thing was, was done, yeah. uh, or actually voted on, and, and when they started suing us, the city staff said, you know, quote, they had a new interpretation on our zoning, unquote. His exact words. I wrote it down. I've memorized it. Know it verbatim. Because when he's when when city staff says they to about a developer, they had a new interpretation on our zoning. That yeah. means that developer is interpreting our zoning and telling us what the residential de- uh, density is on that. So let's okay. talk about that project. It's four point one acres. We'll just call it four acres. Yeah. Rated for thirty five units an acre. So they were saying we have one hundred forty nine units here. We'll put in nine units of affordable housing, and then we'll get a bonus of roughly 30, uh, 21 units. That's so in total, law, right. They were trying, that's to, a use, state trying to use the state law, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. So then they would get a total of 180 units in that particular yep. parcel. Yeah. And, uh, what's important about that, then they got to go up an extra story higher. They right. got to reduce their parking requirements. They had all these other, you know, things that they could do, uh, to, to have those quote nine affordable units. So yeah. out of 180 units, only nine would be affordable. Well, what they didn't talk about was one of those acres, a hotel sat on. Okay. So an entire acre of that four, 25% of that acreage was not buildable. They were not putting on mixed use. They were not putting on housing because it was staying put as the hotel. Yeah. So our, our zoning specifically had said that you can't do that that you're actually only building on uh, roughly three acres. So when the city council uh, made the decision, they said, you're building mixed use on three acres. It's 115 units. Uh, We'll bring down the commercial 23,800 square feet as you wanted. And you have the hotel on the last one acre of land. Right. And, you know, we just settled that lawsuit and they actually brought down the commercial square footage down to 21,000 square feet. And we have some other things in place now that ensures and guarantees that the apartment developer, uh, what, that's the person who owns the, the actual property is the apartment developer, will yeah. guarantee to be uh, to develop or redevelop the hotel because it's currently closed due to a fire. Okay. And if they don't redevelop it following a certain timeline, they give us a million dollars. We, we take a million dollars out of, out of an account they've already set aside. Got so when, when you start realizing that that this developer is now developing at 100% maximum residential density for the three acres, and a huge percentage of that is also commercial plus the hotel, you start realizing, wow, this is a very dense project. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. the mixed-use project 300 yards down has yeah. been an utter total complete failure, in that, which was built in 1990s, mid-90s. Okay. And that's been a total failure. So, you know, things like that, you start realizing the context. And there's a reason why the community fought so hard and successfully won. Got it. So let me, I want to ask about that project in the context of, in the context of all these state laws that the developers yeah. sort of tried to access um, to get what it, to get what it wanted built. Right. And so yeah. they said, oh, okay, you know, we are, we believe your zoning code says this. So we want to build within zoning. And as a result, we want to take advantage of this, of this sort of state program that says, you know, we can we can build more if we include some low income low income housing as part of the project. Um, and you know, this this was an effort that when you guys had done one of your prior uh, housing plans and submitted that to the state, you know, you referenced 
the fact that this was at 180, 180 units was um, something that was on the table for this for this parcel of land. And so here are all the way that the state says, look, like this is what should be built. The developer tries to do it. And, you know, you guys you guys say no uh, at that level. You know, why do you think the state's sort of attempts to intervene in these sorts of areas were misplaced for what you think the community um, might want? So the entire premise, again, is actually completely, utterly, totally false because 180 units was off the predication that they're going to build on all four acres, which they're not. They're only going to build on three acres. And now you're going to sit here and say, honestly, tell me that a developer can now buy a piece of property and interpret yeah. a piece of zoning and say to that community, this is our interpretation. And we believe a residential now or R1 now includes you can have 10 families in this house. We'll just you know, section off the house so 10, 10 families can live there, even though it's yeah. one house, you know, th that's a very dangerous road to go down where you start allowing developers to self-interpret a city's zoning and then say to the community, you will take this because this is the way it reads and it's good and it's beneficial for you. And oh, by the way, um, the, how the state allows us to, that's, uh -huh. that's, you know, that's a very dangerous path to walk down because at that point in time, why even have a city and have local zoning or local zoning control? Because you've now taken away all zoning control from the city, uh -huh. right? Uh -huh. I mean, it, it doesn't make any sense at that point in time. So it, it's all about local zoning, char uh, character of the community. You'll see, you know, when this thing goes up, it's going to be way outside the character of the community. We already have apartment buildings that were built uh, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, that 50, 60 units an acre. And those uh, that area is absolutely blasted with with parking problems, traffic problems, noise problems and all the other things. And, you know, they're all apartments. None of them are condos. And uh, everyone that lives there has to deal with it. And nobody likes it. OK, um, well, you know what? This was actually fantastic. Like, I'm glad we had your voice on this. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, thanks very much for. Uh, taking the time to chat with uh, me and Liam. You're welcome, man. Have a good day. You too. Take care. Bye. Look, I, th I think uh, one of the great accomplishments of the state housing package that got signed into law a couple months ago was that it definitely ratchets up the presumed level of accountability for all jurisdictions in California to uh, do their part and you know help help with their sort of fair share of the housing need that the states and the regions have. And so... I think, first of all, it's just a fair point to note that what's been going on in Redondo Beach in the past may be different going forward because of the signal that's getting sent out of Sacramento. That's certainly my hope. Um, and I think a lot of jurisdictions are sort of taking their cues from what's going on in Sacramento and looking to shift their housing policies to be a little bit more progressive. Um, that's, that's the hope. But yeah. there are specific hammers uh, now and specific carrots as well that I think will help to change patterns of behavior in a more positive way for cities like Redondo Beach. Well, couldn't you argue sort of the opposite? I mean, you know, the 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 the, the, the mixed use moratorium happened or at least contemporaneously or, or around the same time with the housing package passed, or at least there was that that effort. And you know, they've I've read uh, articles where they've said, look, you know, we're this is in, in some ways some reaction to what the state is doing. We want to try to protect ourselves even more. And I've not just Redondo Beach. I've heard that from a number of local government officials. How do you prevent things like that from happening? Uh, well, I think. You know, this this gets to the heart of I think which we're here to talk about today, which is like sort of like it or not, uh, developers have recourse to build um, 
even in jurisdictions that are not welcoming of them under the housing legislative package. And the state and the Department of Housing and Community Development specifically has the ability to bring in actions that will you know, force those things to change. Hopefully that won't be the case in Redondo Beach. Hopefully they'll get there on their own. But I mean, we can certainly do a little thought experiment on, you know, in terms of thinking about, okay, if, if the housing package had been in place, you know, what, how could things have played differently in the re, with the recent projects that have been going through Redondo uh, Beach? And then, you know, what could HCD be doing differently to, you know, get to where we need to be in terms of having places like Redondo Beach hit their housing targets? Let's do it. Let's do that thought experiment. Yeah. The, think with us, Ben. <laughs> what, what, uh, what, 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 what specifically happened that, or got passed that you think would 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 change some of these things? So, so let's. So, so some of some of these may or may not work, and I and I don't have the specifics of all of the projects, but I I do know there. You know, as an example, there was a recent project, um, uh, Legato, that was moving forward originally with a significant amount of commercial square footage and like thirty-seven thousand six hundred square feet of commercial and a. Originally, 180 apartment units. Um, that project um, could have been designed to be compliant with the Housing Accountability Act. Mm-hmm. So we had three bills actually that strengthened the Housing Accountability Act. This is the you know signature sort of 1982 piece of legislation known as the anti-NIMBY uh, anti-NIMBY uh, law that obligates cities to approve certain kinds of projects if they meet certain kinds of characteristics. Generally, yeah. they approve the, you know, they conform to the existing zoning, they right. don't have any health and safety issues, um, they, they work from a CEQA perspective. Um, I, I, this project probably wouldn't qualify as structured currently because it wouldn't have enough uh, affordable units. I think that maybe 5% of the original proposal was affordable. Yeah. It was a density uh, bonus project. Yeah, yeah, so they, that's why they did a very minimal number. But it's right. not inconceivable that they could have chosen to have a greater share of affordable units built into their project. They could have maybe tried to get some public subsidy to make, make that happen. They could have maybe subsidized some of those units off of uh, some of the revenues that they're getting. And the reason that they would do that is because with the changes to the Housing Accountability Act now you know, effective Jan 1, yeah. um, the, the, the city, if they had arbitrarily denied this project under that you know, basically the developer could have made a claim under the Housing Accountability Act and gone to the courts, and the courts could have come down and said, this project has to go forward, you, the city, are in the wrong, and we're, we're assessing you a $10,000 per unit fee yeah. um, and making you pay attorneys, attorneys, attorney's fees um, if you don't uh, allow this project to go forward. Yeah. And furthermore, the new legislation said that that court now, as it considered this case, would have to use what's called a reasonable person perspective. So they would have to actually think about the merits of this, not from sort of giving deference to a city, but actually thinking about it from a sort of a third party looking in from the outside. That, yeah. that, that could very much have changed the dynamics of the project. Yeah. Um, ben, I'm curious, the, the housing package has placed a lot of um, new responsibilities on HCD and kind of uh, beat you guys up as kind of an enforcement agency. Do you feel that you have the staff and resources necessary to kind of execute what needs to be executed for the package to be a success? Um, so, yes and no. I mean, yes, in the sense that, you know, we have a team of folks here who have spent, you know, the, last, the better part of the last several decades essentially reviewing uh, the plans that jurisdictions have put together in terms of showing how those jurisdictions can meet their housing goals. This is the, the housing element, as it's called, and the arena. And so I think we have a pretty good degree of sophistication around just understanding what it takes to be compliant under housing element law. Um, I think where we 
are going to have to build out the capacity is probably the more ex- more expansively what AB 72 does is, number one, it does ask us to think sort of comprehensively about many other bodies of state housing law that, uh, you know, you mentioned state density bonus law or the Housing Accountability Act. There are other provisions of state housing law that we have not historically sort of directly had oversight over. They, they, they tend to go together in the sense that often when you are not meeting your housing element or your arena, uh, you know, that's like a you know, a symptom of a greater <laughs> challenge, which often then shows up in arbitrary, arbitrary denials of projects or failing to meet these other provisions of state housing law. So sometimes it comes together. But I think that's an area where we're going to need to get smarter. Uh, I think we're also going to need to get smarter around what does it mechanically mean to sort of affirmatively decertify a housing element that we have you know, deemed in compliance because, for example, a moratorium has been passed. Right. Uh, we're also going to need to get a lot smarter about literally sort of the legal part of like how do you bring a case forward working with the attorney general's office. That's new under AB 72 mm-hmm. and not something that we've we've done before. We've, we've, we've assisted sometimes with other third-party plaintiffs who have brought cases in terms of putting together information, but we've never sort of put that package together ourselves. So that's all new. So uh, is any of the, you know, I didn't, any of the bills that doesn't, none of them necessarily came with new resources for you folks, right? Yeah, no, that, that that is an interesting quirk of the way that it worked. A whole bunch of stuff dropped on our lap for implementation and guidelines and putting new funding out. Uh, much of that had January 1 effective dates, but we do not have additional staffing mm-hmm. and uh, won't have any new staffing in all likelihood until the next budget cycle comes around. Um, and then to starting, which would be in July of next year, we will begin trying to bring on some more of that capacity and resources. How many people do you currently have reviewing each city's APR? Uh, so we have a team of about 12 that reviews all California jurisdictions, uh, housing elements, and APRs. And so the, and the APR being the annual form that the yep. cities turn into uh, to uh, show how much production they've had, I guess. Over the yeah. yeah. Um, and, and is that enough, in your opinion? Well, not, 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 not in terms of being able to do very much with that data. Uh, I think a lot of it comes in, and we, pull, we look at it on a you know, case-by-case basis, or if a concern comes up. One of the challenges we've recently been discovering is that some of the new bills that passed also put um, thresholds in there. So SB 35 is a great example. This is right. the streamlining uh, bill, and it and it only clicks into place. It only allows developers the ability to use that authority if jurisdictions have fallen behind based on their APRs in, in hitting their production targets. Well, for, for that to work, we need to be pretty confident that we know where they are with mm-hmm. their APRs. And... You know, we, we have now begun the process of really going back critically and making sure that that data that we have, that we've been collecting all these years, is actually up-to-date and accurate. And unfortunately, in many, many cases, it, it's not. And right. so we're right now hustling and working. We'll be working closely with the cities and counties to make sure that we have the, the most current and accurate data. So I guess I'm wondering, and this gets kind of at the fundamental thing that we kind of talk about and talk around is just the general state and local relationship or state and regional and local relationship on, on these issues, right? I mean, you know, if a city wants to hide the fact that it's not turning in a form or not passing a particular project, it is tough for you or really any agency to know um, everything that's going on in a particular city, right? Or whether a yeah. patch of land they've zoned for multifamily housing could actually be, you know, a, a median, right? Like, yeah. you don't know that. And so there's so many ways that... Uh, local governments can sort of avoid, um, you know, telling you things and a lot of ways where, you know, there have been a lot of rules that you folks have put have put out there that, that you know, I, I'm somewhat sympathetic to local governments' arguments that they, it can be onerous or, or, or burdensome and to what end. And so I guess, you know, how much... Uh, 
how much more authority or, or what, what are the, what are the appropriate mix, I guess, of characteristics that you think that you need to have to kind of cut through um, both of those concerns? Well, historically, uh, on a lot of the process related to the housing element, where we've been able to make good progress is either where we're constructively working with a city. And look, most cities are constructively working with us. Um, you know, the overwhelming majority of housings have you know, compliant housing elements, and they're doing the work under state law. They're acting in good faith to accommodate the demand. I think in, in, in many places where, where we have had concerns that we haven't had a good faith partner, it's often, usually, been the case that we've found out about that because it's surfaced by folks within those cities. So we uh, require a public comment process. We invite folks who have concerns for what the city is doing to weigh in with the city. Um, we find out about those concerns, and that's often what motivates us to look with more scrutiny at a given city and what they're doing and the reasonableness of what they're proposing. And you know, certainly that will continue to be the case going forward. I think what's different, again, is you know there are these sort of sticks, so to speak, of you know the attorney general could get involved. We could decertify your housing element, uh, the Housing Accountability Act sanctions. I think cities will be more cognizant that they don't want to get clubbed with those sticks. And frankly, you know we don't particularly want to go around clubbing cities either. So if it, if, it, if it can serve as much of a deterrent and and be used as minimally as possible, that's just fine with me. Mm-hmm. And then on the carrot side. Uh, you know, first of all, if you are keeping up with your uh, reporting requirements and you are producing enough cities, then then things like SB 35 don't click into place. You have more land use control. Um, And there are a bunch of state programs, like literally funding, that you can um, take advantage of in your city that may uh, be things you really want. So uh, things like cap-and-trade funds for building affordable housing and Related amenities are hint- contingent on housing element and APR compliance. Things like SB1 infrastructure planning funds are contingent. Uh, if SB3, the, the housing bond That's passes. the guest tax money. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I think increasingly a lot of funds, you know, pe- policymakers are realizing that these things are all tied together and are saying, hey, if you're a city where you're not even doing the basics of planning for the growth you know you need, providing the basic data, then, yeah, we're going to start to take away some of your land use controls and we're also going to make it harder for you to get these other pots of money that we know you want. And so that's a powerful motivator, because that means people within those cities are going to be pushing the cities to say, hey, we, we want our cities to be able to be competitive for these funding sources. So let's do what's being obligated of us under state housing law. Ben, what's a realistic goal in terms of statewide housing production for next year? What What's a number that would make you say, you know what, this is pretty good? Well, look, I, first of all, I don't think that this, that this, this package is going to take time to, to implement and to educate. I think folks are just beginning to wrap their minds around the implications of what came out of this past legislative session. We're going to be spending much of 2018 doing things like developing guidelines, developing technical, you know, putting out technical assistance. I, I'm hard-pressed to think that we're going to see, be able to like, do a direct you know, line relationship between the passage of this bill and increased housing production 12, 12 months later. That seems like a stretch to me. Um, so what number what number do you think then I mean putting aside whether the package affects that or not what what number do you think the, that that would you know you'd be happy with or, well, or, or that you think sort like a realistic I mean we so we we um, you know look we, we published our statewide housing assessment earlier this year and we put in there the, the the target number that you know we're saying the state needs to be planning for and therefore building to and that's 180,000 units per year um, that is up about 80,000 more 
than we we've done in the last year. It's up uh, about a hundred thousand more than we've done on average over the last couple of decades. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we could get up to that level, I would be very happy. But I also want to be clear: like that number is not going to is, is enough to basically tread water. It, 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 even if we were to basically double our production, we would still not necessarily see rent starting to really plummet or house prices going down. I think we would basically be holding level from a housing crisis perspective. So I would be thrilled if we could get that far, but I I don't want to even suggest that would in and of itself solve all of our problems. So given how deep this gap is, uh, how sad are you about that? (laughs) (laughs) I'm pretty sad, Liam. I mean, I... I, I kind of went into this field thinking that I could, you know, help make a difference and really change the trajectory. And and it is true that this is a really, really hard policy problem. There are days, I kid you not, where I wake up and I think, boy, if only I'd gone into, you know, some other career, if I, <laughs> you know, like teaching, you know, maybe maybe I would be able to see the fruits of my labor much yeah. quicker. Um, You'd be in it like a studio apartment, though. If that yeah. was. <laughs> I don't exactly know. Yeah, I'm not... Uh, I'm not sure I'm living large yet uh, <laughs> as a state employee. Um, that's a question we should ask all of our guests. Yeah, we should. Ask, that's right. You? How sad are you? Yeah. Every 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 guest like faces something to be sad about in this podcast, unfortunately. So, um, um, Ben, there's been a lot of talk about how a federal tax reform could impact California's efforts to kind of chip away at this affordable housing gap. Um, if federal tax reform actually does happen. Could it derail the everything that just passed? Well, the 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 the, the, the bill that was introduced in the House is very problematic from a sort of production of affordable housing for California in particular. I don't know that it has a huge impact on sort of the overall supply calculation. I know there's been a lot of concern around changes to the mortgage interest deduction right. that that could be mm-hmm. an impediment, and I think it probably could be in some of our higher cost parts of the state. But I think the place where we would see the most market and dramatic immediate effect would be directly in the creation of affordable housing every year. And so I think it's important, people forget this, but it's important to remember that most of the, almost all of the affordable housing that gets produced in a given year in California is funded with this backbone of the low-income housing tax credit. Mm -hmm. So investors purchasing these credits and providing the equity then to make these projects pencil. Um, Tax credit equity... It goes in two forms. There's 9% credits, which is a much richer and deeper subsidy. And there's 4% credit, which is a shallower subsidy. Um, and, uh, you know, the top line headline has sometimes been that the house tax proposal is preserving the low-income housing tax credit. That is true only in the technical sense that it preserves a diluted version of the 9% credit. Right. But, in mm-hmm. fact, it wipes away entirely the 4% credit um, uh because it eliminates the related provision for tax-exempt bonding, which is necessary for generating that 4% mm-hmm. equity. Right. And folks don't realize that actually the 4% credit has funded um, much more of the, um, the large majority of credit. So I, I think it's about 5,000 units or 6,000 units that were funded last year for 9% credits and uh, 19,000 funded mm-hmm. through 4% credits. And here's the thing that's really worrisome from the package perspective. Uh, almost all the funding that we're putting in play through SB2 and SB3, with the asterisks beside it that still needs to go to a vote right. next November, 
all that funding would be would, would sit on top of the four percent credit. It, it really is all presumed to go through that four percent credit mm-hmm. system because the nine percent are totally overextended right, right. now, whereas four percent have a lot more bandwidth. And so if you said, "Geez, well, we wouldn't get the four percent credit," then you'd be looking at putting something like one hundred twenty thirty thousand, one hundred twenty hundred thirty thousand dollars more per unit. Know, from the state into a given project mm-hmm. just to make a deal pencil. And so the number of units you would produce would plummet. Yeah. I think back of the envelope, you know, just to size this and scale this, I mean, if this tax federal tax proposal went, went forward, it would be almost right back where we started in terms of the benefits of SB2 and SB3. Uh, we, we would have lost almost as much as we would have gained. Sounds sad, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> the gloomy housing hour with Ben Metcalf. <laughs> Um, is, is rent control good policy, Ben? Uh, can I say, uh, it depends. <laughs> yes, but you have to flesh that out. You can't just leave it there. So uh, rent, um, rent, so rent, so rent, uh, rent control, by which I, uh, mean broadly to include policies that help stabilize, uh, rising rents, mm-hmm. is hugely helpful for the folks who live in that housing and, and, and preventing unnecessary dislocation. There are a lot of public policy benefits to keeping people stable. Longer tenure correlates to, and the research shows, you know, more civic engagement, more likely to show up and vote uh, in an election, um, increased improved, improved outcomes for kids in school. All those things are very strongly correlated to uh, longer tenure. And so if we can have policies that uh, ameliorate the, or mitigate the rise in rent, uh, I think that's very positive. The flip side is rent control in its harshest form is wildly unfair to the folks who don't have access to the housing but otherwise have the same profile as the people who happen to have the good fortune to live in that housing. Right. And mm-hmm. every economist who has ever gotten a credential degree will tell you that in its sort of purest form of rent control, it just is it is very counterproductive for folks who who want new supply and are sort of therefore trying to solve the root cause of this issue because you know, you don't want to build in a community where you don't think you can actually raise rents in out years to cover your own costs. Mm-hmm. So the solution, uh, you know, has to be something that takes into account all of this. It's the complexity of really hard policy where you have to acknowledge that it makes sense in certain contexts to limit the ability to escalate rent on certain kinds of projects and certain kinds of locations. But at the same time, uh, you can't take that too far. What, what are the projects and locations that make sense then? Well, let's not forget that California, you know, Costa-Hawkins, you know, we have existing state laws that basically came to a tenuous compromise on this and, and provided for rents to be, you know, gave authority to cities to be able to increase rents in uh, older projects um, and up to, you know, up to a certain amount. Right. Um, and so I think there's something in that space where maybe we need to look back at it and try and refine it and update it. And, you know, I, I can't remember what it is, but, you know, only applies to buildings that were built before 1990. Well, that's sort of an arbitrary number. Like, I think there's a bunch of stuff in Costa Hawkins that certainly couldn't hurt to take a, take a look back at it and make sure we've got it right. Um, but, you know, I, I, I do think, you know, the notion of throwing it out altogether is something we need to be careful about. Mm. All right. Uh, anything else, Liam? Not, nothing on my end. Ben, do you want to give us a good sign-off? 
Yeah, look, I, I was, um, I've, I've been a semi-regular listen, listener of this podcast. Semi-regular? <laughs> oh, <laughs> what a backhanded compliment. <laughs> Such but I, just wanted to, I wanted to compliment you guys because I think the word is getting out um, and you guys are having some impact. I actually was down in a farmer's market in San Diego yesterday uh, talking to a guy who was selling produce and he said, uh, he showed me some of his um, pomegranates, he showed me a whole bunch of oranges and then he said, and look at these uh, av- avocados. Avocados, and I said, "Oh my God, that's li- I'm hearing Liam Dillon in the in, in the body of a San Diego farmers market uh, vendor." It was You're really ruining exciting. our dialect, Liam. <laughs> ben, you should see I'm bright red, man. You just got me. So I'm going to write on this the whole week. So, also, I would yeah. not eat those avocados if I were you. Those are imported from like the suburbs of Philly. <laughs> um, but thank you for the compliment. Yes, uh, and thanks so much for your time, Ben. We really you appreciate bet. it. All right, guys. Thanks, yeah. Ben. Sure thing. Bye. Bye.